This day finds many of us looking forward to Christmas, a day in which we take delight. I remember as a child delighting especially in Christmas Eve when my family, according to family tradition, we opened the Christmas gifts on that night and celebrated the season. Never really figured out why that was, if that was a snub on Santa Claus or what the deal was, but that's just the tradition in our family. Uh, To gather on a cold winter night with family around a crackling fire, with oil lamps burning on the mantle, and the glow of the Christmas tree lights on the gifts below, that was a delight. Now, Uh, Granted, it's not a fair comparison on a number of levels, but I will have to admit that I struggled to find the same delight in Sundays. For a kid putting on a necktie and stiff shirt and uncomfortable shoes and going somewhere to sit for a couple of hours was not something that I found particularly delightful. I, I didn't really hate Sundays at all, but it wasn't so easy to find in that day the same delight that I found in Christmas Eve. It's amazing how things change as you mature. I still love the warmth of family gathered for a Christmas Eve celebration, but my relationship with God has grown over the years, and I can now honestly say that this day, this Lord's Day, is a delight to me. I still hate wearing ties and uncomfortable shoes, but this is a delight. Of course, the thing that's changed is not something about the day. It's something about the delight that I find in the Lord. To gather today, on this first day of the week, with people that you love. To gather together to confirm one another's faith. To let your soul burst forth with songs of worship to God to consider the rich truths of Scripture with people who long to know the Word of the Lord, to encourage one another, to commune with one another, to build one another up in the holy faith once for all delivered to the saints, to stand together in silence before the Lord as we did just a few moments ago, to stand in silence before Him, the Creator and the Redeemer, This is a day in which I delight. What has changed, of course, is not some odd attraction to this first day. What has changed is a delight in God himself. This is the whole point of Sunday. It's the whole point of Sunday worship. It's what we considered in Isaiah chapter 58 a couple of weeks ago. It's the whole point of the Old Testament observance of Sabbath as well. Sabbath under the Old Covenant and the Lord's Day today are not identical, but they are organically related. Remember what God said through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 58, if you call the Sabbath a what? If you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honorable. And if you honor it, then you will find your delight in the Lord. That was the whole point of the Sabbath. To take Israel, to train Israel, to lead her to delight in her relationship with God. 
This was God's intention from the very beginning, from the very plan of creation. After six miraculous and spectacular days of creative wonder, which we will never fully conceive, God rested. Not because he was tired, but God rested because he was done creating. And having finished his creative work, he sanctified that seventh day. He made it holy. Now that's amazing. Consider the stunning wonder. I'd like to walk us through some of the details and the facts. Take the time to do that. We don't have the time this morning. But in your mind's eye, consider the wonders of space. Consider the plants and the animals on this earth. Consider the waters of this world teeming with life. Consider the majesty, the spectacular majesty of God's creation. And then consider that He made male and female. In six creative days, with all of that splendor and awesome wonder, God sanctifies not day one, or two, or three, or four, or five, or six. He sanctifies the one day on which he creates nothing. The Sabbath. He sanctifies the day on which he rested from his creative work. In other words, of those seven days, he's going to pick one of those days to make distinctive and holy. In fact, in a sense, he, in, he creates this seventh day as the unique and holy day on which he creates nothing. Now, what is God doing? What is he up to? It is clear that he sanctifies the seventh day and commands his people to rest in worship on that day so that they will learn to delight not in his creation, but learn to delight in him. The Sabbath was established so that God's people would delight in the Lord. Well, taking all of that theme, and we'll return to it, but taking all of that theme, it is just such a day. It is a Sabbath day on which we find Jesus traveling with his disciples. Luke chapter 6. And we find them here eating grain on this day. Luke chapter 6 and verse 1. One Sabbath, fill that in with all that we've just discussed here. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some of the heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Is that, is that okay? I mean, that that kind of seems a little scary, doesn't it? If we had, uh, let's say, 13 of our uh, teens got in a van and went down 169 on a fall day and got out next to one of those apple orchards along the road and went and they all helped themselves to a couple of apples and ate them there, would not that be stealing? What are they doing walking through this grain field and helping themselves to someone's grain? Is this wrong? I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy 23. We'll come right back to Luke 6, but Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25 give us the answer. Deuteronomy 
Deuteronomy 23, 24, if you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. Self-explanatory. It's all right to help yourself as you're traveling through someone's field or vineyard. To sustain yourself, to give yourself the energy to continue to travel, but don't take anything with you. No food for the road. So what Christ's disciples are doing here are within the bounds of the law. Or are they? Verse 2 of Luke chapter 6. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? It seemed that Deuteronomy 23 said it was lawful what they were doing. What is the Pharisees' complaint? What the disciples are doing is lawful, but according to the Pharisees, what they are doing on the Sabbath is not. That's the problem. A little background here is essential for us contemporary Gentiles. That every Jew knew that the Sabbath was sanctified. And it was sanctified as a day of restful focus upon God, but no Jew knew exactly what that meant. The Old Testament did not give a lot of guidance on what it meant to rest, what it meant not to work. And so the rabbis, as was their characteristic trait, rejoiced to fill in the blanks for everyone and let them know what they had decided. They had come up with 39 laws to define what constitutes work on the Sabbath day. Included in these regulations, you cannot reap, you cannot thresh, and you cannot winnow, and you cannot prepare food on the Sabbath. Well, as Leon Morris puts it so memorably, the disciples are in trouble here, for they have committed four distinct breaches of the Sabbath in one mouthful. By picking, now this is how the Pharisees would see it. This is how, and there was much text to discuss these points. By picking the head of grain off the stalk they had reaped. By rubbing the head of grain in the palm of their hand to get the husk off, they had threshed. And by throwing the husks out into the air and getting rid of them, they had winnowed. And obviously in all of this, they had prepared food for themselves on the Sabbath in violation of the law. Now the Pharisees had Jesus and his disciples dead to rights as far as they're concerned. The case is closed, but Jesus responds. Verse 3, Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Believe me, to question whether a Pharisee had ever read 1 Samuel 21 was not a compliment. They had it memorized. They knew everything about it. They knew how the phrases worked together in 1 Samuel 21. They could tell you more about 1 Samuel 21 than you'd ever care to hear. Have you never read? Says Jesus. He brings scriptural light in here at verse 3, or at verse 4. He entered the house of God. And taking the consecrated bread... He ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Now, this is all referring back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. We, we remember David there is running from King Saul. 
So urgent is his escape that he takes no weapon, he has no food, he has some men with him who are running with him, and they go to Nob, where the tabernacle was stationed at that time. And Ahimelech the priest, you remember there, gives him some of the consecrated bread. Now according to Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 8, the priests were to place 12 new baked loaves every Sabbath day, arranged in two rows of six on a golden table on the north side of the tabernacle. No one was to eat those loaves except for the priests. Leviticus 24 and verse 9. That was the law. Is David a priest? No, he's not. But he eats this consecrated bread, interestingly enough, probably on the Sabbath, because that's the day on which it would be eaten. Possibly. But he, the point here is, eats that bread in violation of God's law. God said no one eats that bread but the priests. Yet David ate the bread. Now this is no new conundrum to the Pharisees. They dealt with this issue before and there was all types of discussion as to how to work this out. Many of the Pharisees had simply said it's worked out this way. It really wasn't the consecrated bread. It wasn't the bread of the presence. It wasn't this unique bread that Ahimelech gave them. It couldn't be because they violated the law of God by giving it to David. This was their answer. The only problem with their answer is it ran right into the face of what Scripture says. 1 Samuel 21 and verse 6, I quote, So the priest gave him the consecrated bread. It just shows you how many hoops we can jump through to argue with Scripture when we have a preconceived notion, an agenda to prove. And the Pharisees had an agenda to prove. The law can never be broken. But the Bible said the priest gave him the consecrated bread. I continue to quote, Since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. There's no question what bread was given to David. Jesus says, have you never read that passage? David violated the law, technically. What is Jesus saying here? I don't think he's simply purporting a more lenient application of scriptural law. He is not saying that we should just break God's law whenever it seems right. What he is saying is, Pharisees, you have missed the whole point of the law. Think where we started today. What is the point of the Sabbath? What is the point of the seventh day? It is to find our rest and our delight in God. That's the point of the Sabbath. Yes, God's Word said no one but a priest should eat that bread. David ate that bread, however, and Ahimelech was right to give it to him. I think we could say it this way. Here is Jesus' point from 1 Samuel 21. The law has its limits. When obedience to the law of God, when the obedience to the law, which God issued to help people love Him more, leads you to love people less, something is wrong. The Sabbath was made for God's people, not God's people for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created that God's people would find their joy in Him, not so that they would be forced to treat others unmercifully. David was hungry. His men were hungry. And Ahimelech did the right thing. 
Pharisees, says Jesus, my disciples are serving God like David was, and they are hungry. Ahimelech understood that God loves mercy more than he loves sacrifice. So Ahimelech let David eat. If you had mercy, you would let my disciples eat on the Sabbath without rebuke. You are missing the whole point of the Sabbath. Let me read what several commentators say to get at the gist of Jesus' teaching. Morris says, Human need must not be subjected to barren legalism. Bach writes, Jesus advocates a restricted hierarchical ethic, and David's example is his defense. Ceremonial restrictions of law are to give way to human need. There are situations in which the law can be waived or transcended. Another commentator writes, ceremonial rights being only means to an end must give way to a higher moral law. Well, hold on to your seat. If Jesus shocked the Pharisees with that kind of teaching, he's going to stun them with this revelatory declaration, verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I just read a book recently in which one of the authors argued this quite vehemently. He said, Jesus never said he was God. Therefore, it's wrong for us to say that he is God. Well, true enough, I don't find in Scripture a passage that where Jesus says, I am God. I was thinking about that a little bit this week and thought, you know, I am doubtful that anybody here has ever heard me say, I am Beth's husband. Anybody heard me say that? I can just see this author at my funeral saying, you know, he never said he was Beth's husband. Maybe he really wasn't because he never said it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do not miss what Jesus just said here. The God who created the heavens and the earth and all of their hosts, the God who created every creature in the sea and every animal and insect and plant on earth, the God who created male and female, this God ceased from his creative work on the seventh day. He rested. This God consecrated that day to point His people to rest in Him as their soul's delight. And Jesus stands forward and says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. What more do we need to hear? What Man, son of man, and that's a point all in itself, which we won't even unpack, that he uses that phrase of himself, the son of man, just to leave that phrase alone. What man could ever say, I am Lord of the Sabbath? He'd be a demented deceiver or God, very God. This was a shocking statement. 
Jesus springboards off this controversy and he forces his critics to deal directly with who he is. This reminds us of what happened in chapter 5, verse 20. You remember there, Jesus saw the faith of this man. He said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Remember the opposition that comes then from the Pharisees, verse 21, and the teachers of the law. Who can forgive sins but God alone? What does Jesus do? Verse 24, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus forces his critics to face the fact that he has the power to forgive sins by healing this paralytic. In like manner, Jesus has just claimed now to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And the next episode, in our first episode, we see mercy in a grain field. We have a second episode now, mercy in a synagogue, which will prove what Jesus has said, that he is Lord of the Sabbath. We find the authorities watching Jesus in the second episode in the synagogue, beginning at verse 6. On a Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Apparently, the man's hand is atrophied and essentially useless to him. But the, what is important here to note, more than the man and his condition in this context, is the Pharisees who are looking for a reason to accuse him. They're watching him closely. The Greek word there indicates that the Pharisees recognize this man is there, and they watch Jesus with sinister intent. They want Jesus to heal him. They want him slash don't want him to heal. They'd love to see him fall on his face and not be able to heal the man that he tries to heal, but they want him to heal him on the Sabbath so that they can prove him a violator of the laws of God. They're watching him closely. A little background again, just briefly, but rabbinical tradition said it's fine to, to give medical help on six days of the week, but not on the seventh day, unless a person's life is in danger. Babies were delivered on the Sabbath, obviously. And people who were dying would be cared for on the Sabbath. But if you were, if you were not in danger of death, no medical help could be given on a Sabbath. That was the rabbinical interpretation. With that context in mind, here are these opponents of Christ gathered in this synagogue, and they see two people. Here's a man over here with a withered hand. Here is a man over here they all know has miraculous healing powers. Now what bridge do you create between those two men? The bridge the Pharisees created between the two had nothing of mercy in it. They could not see that man. They could not see him in his need. All they could see was their law. And their hatred of Christ is beginning to well up. No compassion for the man. They watch only if Jesus will violate the Sabbath. Verse 8, But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. This isn't going to be done in a corner. 
And you know what? It's very interesting to see here, Jesus also doesn't wait for the next day. Matter of fact, in our thinking, he doesn't even need to wait to the next day, he just needs to wait until the sun goes down. And he could heal this man's withered hand without any difficulty from the critics. But he pushes it. He has the man stand in front of everyone and says, stand here and hold out your hand. He'll say that in a moment, but he says, stand here. Verse 9, then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? I don't know exactly what Jesus is thinking there. I wish that I did. But there is great irony in it. These Pharisees are assembled there at this very moment to do evil and to destroy life, his life. That's what you're up to, Pharisees, perhaps could be Jesus' thought. Is it right for me to do good for this man on Sabbath? There is a deafening silence. No one speaks. No one has anything to say. He looked around at them all, verse 10 says, Mark adds that Jesus looked at them with anger and with grief. As Barclay puts it, there is in this story a glorious atmosphere of defiance. He looks around at them. Is it right to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And then, verse 10, says to the man, stretch out your hand. So there he is, front and center, with his hand stretched out so that no one can miss what happens. Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Remember back to chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he says to the paralyzed man, get up and walk. And we could say in parallel the same thing is going on here, that you may know that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He says to this man with a withered hand, be healed and it's healed. Just stretch out your hand and it's healed. He's proving that he's Lord of the Sabbath. And isn't it ironic, what work does Jesus do? The only work that he does is to command the man to stick, stick out his hand. But believe me, the Pharisees get to work on this Sabbath right then and there. Verse 11, they were furious. The Greek word means to be mad with anger, a mindless rage. They are furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Definite understatement there. How they might kill Jesus would be a fair way to put it, as Matthew and Mark confirm. What had Jesus done? He'd simply shown mercy to a man on the Sabbath. He had relieved a man from his suffering, but their religious rules did not have room for such mercy. They should at that moment have fallen down on their knees before the Lord, but what do they do? They begin to whisper among themselves to plot his murder. It is a symbol of entrenched 
depravity. And this theme of rejection, if you have noticed as we've worked our way through Luke, is really beginning to get ahead of steam. Chapter 5 and verse 20 the fa- verse 21, rather, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Chapter 5 and verse 30, 530, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Chapter 5 and verse 33, John's disciples Some of the disciples of Pharisees also have come as we put together other texts and they say, how come you don't fast? And now, chapter 6 and verse 11, they are filled with a blinding rage and want to destroy him. I want to spend a few moments and to filter what we've read and seen And on this point, let me just stop here at verse 11 and draw out a principle from this response. On its own, no miracle will ever convince an unbeliever to embrace Christ. You remember the rich man as he speaks to Abraham in hell? If someone from the dead will go back to and tell my brothers... They won't have to come here. They'll believe someone who comes back from the dead. Send Marley's ghost. What does Abraham say? They have the word of God. If they don't believe that, they won't believe the miracle. That says something powerful to us as Christians. You realize you could have all of the miracle-working power in the world and it would not bring anyone to Jesus Christ any better than the Word of God that you hold in your lap. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power that opens the blind eyes to see the truth. You could perform all the miracles in the world. You could go to Africa and you could heal everyone with AIDS. You could go to some place where there's never been rain for a very long time and you could bring down torrents of rain at a spoken word. And all you would do would be to blind people in their rebellion against God unless the word of God cracks the door. We have that word. We don't need miracles. What we need is to take the word of God and to let it run its course. For God to open blind eyes to see the truth. They watched this man's hand change right before their eyes. And they hated Jesus for it. I've been asked a number of times through the years, why did Jesus not appear to any unbelievers? This is why. Why did Jesus in resurrected form not appear to unbelievers? This is why. It would do no good. When you're blinded to the truth, you're blinded to the truth. But let me say this in a broader way as we filter these episodes. Mercy in a grain field and mercy in a synagogue. 
If you'll follow me carefully here, let me make this proposition. Those who love God prioritize mercy over sacrifice and the love of people over ritual obedience. Those who love God prioritize mercy over sacrifice and the love of people over ritual obedience. Let me say by way of application then, it is hypocrisy to attend church week in and week out and not love the people in your church. It is hypocrisy to read your Bible and pray while you continue to disrespect your husband or treat your wife with cold indifference. It is hypocrisy to pursue holy, distinctive living in this world and to do nothing to bring an unbeliever to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Matthew 9.13 That's holiness without mercy. It is hypocrisy to give gifts and tithes to God and to treat needy people with indifference. Luke chapter 10, 36 and 37. Hypocrites are interested in external religious performance and ritual observance. They're not genuinely interested in mercy. Treating others with undeserved, gentle kindness and thoughtful compassion. Let's get it straight as God's people. God is big on mercy. And so mercy is big in the minds of people who love Him. I'm not talking about condoning sin. But if you do not love to cut people a break, to treat people better than they deserve, to go out of your way to do good to them, then you should ask yourself if you're really following Jesus. I preach to myself. Micah 6.8 What does the Lord require of you? To go to church, to read your Bible, and to pray every day. Those are good things, but that's not what the text says there. What does the Lord your God require of you to act justly and to love mercy? Hosea 6.6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew 5.7, Blessed are the merciful. I challenge you as God's people today, be merciful. Let me take it down a second line, just for a few moments. Those who love God find in Jesus Christ their Sabbath rest. What we have read here today is absolutely earth-shaking. It is earth-shaking that we meet on the first day of the week. The universe was created in six days and God rested on the seventh day and called his people with biblical precedent to rest on the seventh day in the Old Testament. But with biblical precedent, we worship on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That is amazing. 
I've thought of this over and over again. It's beginning to clear in my muddy mind why we meet on the first day of the week. When the whole creative order is centered on rest on the seventh. The universe still ticks on a seven-day cycle. Yet Jesus' resurrection from the dead ushered in a cosmic revolution that overrides the seventh day and focuses on the first. It is stunning to consider historically that the early church never fretted about observing Sabbath and never worried about defining rules against certain activities on Sunday. The Jewish anxiety about rest on Sabbath was abandoned And the only explanation is Jesus Christ. So dramatic, so revolutionary, so cosmic in its implications was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that his people began to meet, not on the seventh day, but on the first. This event ushered in a new age that was as dramatic as the Father resting on the seventh day. This transformation of cosmic proportions is due to our union with the resurrected Christ. I would have never written the script that way. I could have never seen that coming. But you can look through your New Testament over and over again and see God's people meeting on the first day of the week. And what does that say? In light of the Sabbath and the Sabbath's preparation of for us to delight in God, it says to us now that Jesus is our rest. He now is our delight in God. He is Lord of the Sabbath rest that we find in the Lord. And Christian, He is Lord of everything else as well. When Jesus stood forward and said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, He was saying, I am Lord of all creation. He, he doesn't get made the Lord when you've come to a place where you kind of figure out that you want to grant Him that right. He is the Lord. He is not the Lord just of those who are believers. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the master. And what a delight it is to come to the place where you meet him and know him as master and you find that it's not bondage, it's delight. He is the Lord and any other perspective is wickedness. I love this Lord's day. I love this day. I love to gather with God's people to affirm in unity 
that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, and that in him we rest by faith in God. And so we gather, rightly, week in and week out, to worship the Lord. What a delight. And let's thank him for it as your prayers ascend before his throne. Lord, hear our cry. May we lay down before you any idols of the heart that we hold on to. Perhaps there are some that are in bondage to such idols, and I pray, God, that you will give them hope and give them strength and allow them, Lord, in their pride to take the hand of a brother or sister in Jesus and to trust that person's hand and direction and to get out of the bondage. I pray for those of us who have idols that we doctor and maintain on the shelf of our heart. And I pray that you'd help us to cast them out. That we would find in you the source of our soul's joy and gladness. And that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you that you reign. We thank you that our Savior reigns today. And we thank you, God, in another sense that he will reign when the faith becomes sight and Jesus reigns in every dark corner of this planet which he made. We look forward to the completion of our faith as we come before you. Help us now as we struggle. And may we rejoice in your presence. Through Christ I pray. Amen. Let's stand.